You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right, New City family, Ezra chapters 9 and 10 today. Ezra is chapter 9 and 10, where if you're new, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're in the middle of a series called we're calling The New Exodus, which is about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, which are kind of this one overarching story of God um, bringing renewal to a sinful and broken people, which is good news for us, right? Um, we need all the help that we can get, right? And that's, that is God's heart, is to use sinners, right, far beyond their own capacity. And um, in, in the book of Ezra, as we've seen in the story so far, the people um, have returned from exile. So they were taken away from their homeland. They lost their, really their identity as the people of God. They were taken far off. And then God in his mercy has brought them back to their place. And they're in the middle of trying to restore um, both the spirit and physical climate of the city. Um, Jeremiah 29, seven says, um, uh, when the Israelites are in Babylonian exiles, God tells them, he says, seek the welfare of the city where you find yourselves and in it, you'll find your welfare. And so, um, as they return to Jerusalem, they find a very different place than they left, um, in exile. And so they're, they have all these competing religious ideologies and this pressure to compromise and following, um, the God of Israel. And, um, in all of that, God preserves them, but here's, here's Here's what I want you to know. It's complicated. Um, I told you as we get to the end of this book, um, there's a bit of a, an anticlimactic ending. Okay. So what we want to happen is we want to see this, this tremendous story of victory, right? We want the, the, um, the guy to get the girl, the hero to win the story. That's what we're all longing for in the story. And what we're going to find here, um, is that the story ends, um, with some sin, with some terrible decisions, and with some sort of half-hearted repentance and turn towards God. Um, and I want you to know that's, that's not by accident, right? We, we should see that and go like, man, this is a terrible ending, right? Why is it like this? And, and what Ezra is trying to help us do in seeing the story of God um, is to look at our own story and go like, man, if God doesn't intervene, we're toast, Like, that's what he wants us to see. Um, Welcome to church this morning, right? That's what I want you to hear. If God doesn't intervene, if God is not presently active and moving and covering your life, you're toast. Um, And most of the time, we're not aware of that, right? But the book of Ezra is going to help pull our attention back to those realities. And man, we're going to read some controversial challenges or passages from the Bible that might make us a little uncomfortable that we have to think through. What are they talking about here? I want us to get into it. So Ezra's chapter nine and 10, we're not going to read the whole chapters. Um, I'm going to read a few selections of verses. I just heard a sigh in the room, right? Like, oh, thank Ooh, nine and 10. Okay. Um, uh, I'm going to read some selections of verses here. And so if y'all will just stand in reverence for the reading of God's word this morning, uh, we are going to start in chapter nine verses one through five. Okay. After these things had been done, the officials approached me 
and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and, and for their son and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this fatherlessness, um, or I'm sorry, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me and sat appalled while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God. Skipping on to chapter 10, verse one. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shekinah, the house of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as has been said. So they took an oath. Moving down to verse nine, it says, then the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month of the 20th day of the month and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra, the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women. And so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice. It is so we must do as you have said. Skipping on to verse 16. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of father's households, houses according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. This is God's word. Y'all can have a seat today. 
Um, so if it, if it wasn't obvious to you, we find ourselves in the middle of a mess right here, okay? This is like, this is Jerry Springer level stuff, okay? This is, this is an absolute mess um, the people of God find themselves in. Um, now, I want you to know something that's important for us. This is a contextual note as we're interpreting and making sense of this passage. Um, at times, um, the Bible has been used to do bad things in history. I know you probably know that, right? Um, but sometimes in history, people have taken a passage like this and said, well, Israel was barred from marrying foreign women. Therefore, something like interracial marriage is like sinful or wicked. And I want you to know um, that is not what the Bible is teaching us in this passage. Okay. Um, right here, what we're seeing it when God calls um, the men of Israel not to marry women of the foreign nations, this is not about ethnic purity. This is not about racial preservation right here. Um, this is about preserving the integrity of the worship of the people of God, okay? That's, that's what's happening here because marriage, it was the equivalent of um, the people of Israel embracing um, the practices of pagan worship that came along with these nations um, that were listed right here, the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, that's my favorite one to say, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, so on and so forth. Right here, um, God is trying to preserve the worship of the people of Israel because historically, here's what happens. Um, the people are given an assignment by God um, they go to get after it and they get tripped up in worshiping false gods right? They get tripped up and you're like, man, it's like, it's a golden statue. Is it really that enticing? What about a golden statue like compels your heart to be like, I need to have that thing right now. There's nothing in that for us, but friends, before we get an attitude of superiority this morning, let's recognize we are no different. Okay, we don't worship tiny golden statues to be sure, but make no mistake. We worship false gods all the time. And that's the rebuke of this passage is to say to us, man, you as the people of God, you have worshiped false gods. You have turned this week to, um, to every other place besides the God that you are meant to worship in so many different ways. And, and here's what I know about sin, right? Sin, that's, that is worshiping a false God. That's departing from God's good design. That's what the Bible calls sin. Um, sin has ripple effects, right? You, you remember the feeling of being a kid and loving to throw a rock into a pond, right? You remember that feeling? How many skips can I get? I, I grew up in the country, y'all. So we would find a good country bridge and a creek and we would pick up the biggest rock that we could possibly pick off and let that thing go, right? It's still my YouTube obsession to this day, like throwing the biggest possible rock off of the tallest possible thing to just see what happens to it, okay? I don't know why, um, but nevertheless, right? When that rock hits the water, what happened? The impact is huge, right? There's this thing that blows up, but then what happens? ripples, right? It goes out. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens right here. The Israelites, they go and they take wives from these other nations, embracing pagan practices of worship. And if that wasn't sinful and bad enough, guess what? Because this blows up in their face, what ends up happening is that in trying to make this right, then they divorce these women and essentially leave, the, leave them to take care of themselves. 
And as I'm reading this passage this week, I'm, I'm looking at that part and I'm going, God, why aren't you intervening? What is going on here? Like, this seems like your heart, I know your heart is actually um, to care for widows and orphans. How could you be allowing this to happen? Have you ever, have you ever felt that, right? And what I began to realize is that this, this is exactly what sin does. Sin is a dirty bomb. It doesn't just blow up and leave a crater right here. It touches every relationship around you. See, so often when, when we begin to think about sin, we go, man, if it's not hurting somebody else, what's the big deal? And can I tell you, if I can be honest with you and tell you like that, that thought has entered into my heart before. If that's been the thought that's entered into your heart, can I tell you, there is in your heart both a really low view of who God is and how much worship he deserves from your life. And two, there's a very low view of human dignity in your life. Like when you sin, you sin against God, right? You sin against him, you break his law, you break his heart, and you dishonor being a created being. Like when you sin, you dishonor yourself. It's not good, it's a dirty bomb. It blows up in every different direction. And so this passage is gonna show us about the consequences and, and the people of God's attempts to try to come back from this. It's gonna give us some patterns to say, what do we do in the middle of our sinfulness? I want you to know this this morning. God's heart is for rescuing sinners. He loves to do it. I want you to take that into your soul this morning. If you're coming in and we start talking about sin and you're feeling the hair on the back of your neck stand up because you're going, uh-oh, like I'm, I know what yesterday held for me. I know how I failed. I know how broken I am. I know how there's X thing that I can't quit doing that I keep doing over and over and over. Can I tell you God's heart is to call you to real transformation and change. He loves to rescue sinners. If there's one central point I want you to take from this passage this week, it's this. Here it comes. Without God's intervention, sin is a death sentence. Without God's intervention, sin is a death sentence. Sometimes it's a slow death, but it's a certain death. It's what it does. And so, man, in this passage, what we're going to see with the people of God, we're going to see an awareness of their sinfulness, right? Where they come to realize that they're sinners. Number two, we're going to see their, their heart to begin confessing their sins, saying their sins out loud before God and before others. And then finally, um, we're going to see what the Bible calls repentance, where they start trying to turn, right? They start moving away from their sin, Let's start at the beginning though. Number one, point number one, awareness. Look back at the Bible in verse one of chapter nine. It says, after these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land with their abominations. Now I want us to stop for a minute. So after these things have been done, things are going pretty great. 
honestly. Like um, the, the temple is being rebuilt, all this beautiful stuff is happening. We're seeing um, worship is being restored. Um, leaders are getting installed and they're starting to do the, the work of the priest to restore the relationship between the people and God. And so w- we go into chapter nine being like, hey, like we're on, the, we're on the uphill climb in this story. Things are going great. And after these things, right, one sentence changes everything. You ever had one sentence change everything? That's what happens here in verse nine. Some of the officials approach Ezra, who's kind of leading this whole movement. And he says, hey, guess what? The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, they're in secret sin. I hope you know that. He's not just saying, he's like, not, not just the people, right? Not just the congregation. The leaders are in secret sin. Ugh, right? You feel so frustrated. That's what I feel when I read this. I'm like, guys, like you had one job, right? What are you doing? Surely you could have found a pretty girl among the Israelites. What's going on? They've not separated themselves from the people of the land. There's that, that concept, right? Separating themselves from the people of the land. The, the original language is getting at, right? Preserving worship following the God of Israel, rejecting false and idolatrous worship. No, they've entered in and they're essentially living a double life, right? Verse two tells us they've taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the land. Friends, that's where sin so often finds us is in living a double life especially for church folks, y'all. Like where you're like, man, you're coming in on Sunday and like raising your hands. It's like, how, how are you doing this week? Um, man, I'm blessed. Let me tell you how blessed I am. And then on the inside, right? You know, there, there are practices, there are things beneath the surface that are, would rise in a stench before the nose of a holy God. I remember in, in my younger years, there was, a, there was a season where it was like the bumpiest year of my life. It was like 19 to 21. I guess that was two years. Oh, that was rough. Okay, though, though that period of time was the roughest season of my life, had some broken relationships. I ended up, I'm taking a gap year in my college studies because things were, were sort of just imploding around my life. It felt like I was working a job that I didn't want to work. And um, at the same time that I was like serving students, I was um, working in a youth group in the church that we had planted and um, I'm teaching the Bible. And at the same time, I'm making all of these terrible life decisions decisions and the internal conflict that I felt in those moments, it was, it felt like I was being eaten alive. And one, I want you to know, um, if you feel that it is God's mercy toward you to not just give you over to your sinfulness, right? When you can start sinning and you're numb to it, like you're, you're not even aware of the cost you're not even aware of the way that it breaks relationship with God or that it breaks relationships with others. Can I tell you this morning, you are in a dangerous place. I think the most frightening kind of darkness for any person to be in is the kind of darkness that they don't even realize they're in. Right? Imagine 
If you worked in a coal mine, you go underground, right? And you're, you're working your shift and you come out into the sunshine after your 12 hour shift. And you're like, what is that? Like, what is that giant fiery ball in the sky? Right? You had forgotten that daylight even existed because you just gotten so used to darkness. This is where the people of God found themselves used to darkness, loving darkness. But look at Ezra's response in verse three. It tells us, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Did you think you were going to come to church this morning and be told to pull your beard out? That's not actually what I'm telling you to do this morning. But what I want you to notice, this this tearing of the garment, this is a symbol of deep sorrow. Right? Ezra sees sin and he is so grieved because he knows the cost. He is so aware of what this is going to cost the people of God that he is he is overcome with a deep sense of sadness and brokenness. He feels the weight of it. Friend, do you come in this morning feeling the weight of your sin? Are you aware? Like, is there something in your head or your heart right now that you know, man, that, that is the thing, right? When I start talking about it, it comes into your mind. Can I suggest that that might very well be the thing the Holy Spirit is right now trying to bring to your attention? There's this beautiful difference between the general condemnation of the devil and the conviction of God's spirit. Um, See, the, the condemnation of the devil is general and unactionable, okay? It's a, it sounds like this you are a terrible pastor, right? I'm giving you a window into how the enemy speaks to me at times. Man, you are such a failure. What does a person do with something like that? What do you do with something like that? Like, man, you are just a failure. You're just a loser, right? Do you, do you hear that soundtrack in a moment? The conviction of the spirit though sounds different. It it sounds like this you have not pastored in X area well, and I want you to change, right? It's actionable because the spirit is not leading you into condemnation for no purpose. No, no, no. The spirit is leading you to guilt for transformation. And so this morning, two things. Number one, listen for the conviction of the spirit. Like where does he want to bring you aware of your own sinfulness this morning? And sometimes once he brings you aware, you've just got to sit in it for a minute. I think half the reason that we don't feel the level of sorrow that Ezra feels over his sin is because we're so quick to just move past it. Like sometimes you got, you got to sit in it and metaphorically tear your garment and say, God, what is the cost of this? What's the cost of this sin in my own life? What is the cost of this sin for others around me? After this moment, let me say one more thing before I move that direction. There's something beautiful when we come to the promise of the gospel for us this morning. 
You see, there's not a single one of your sins that Jesus was not fully aware of when he died for you. Like, for us so often, we're not, we don't even know what to repent of, right? We're completely unaware. Listen, the sin that you have not even discovered yet, Jesus died for specifically if you were in Christ. That, that part of your character that you don't even have the eyes to see as broken yet. If you are in Christ, Jesus says, yeah, I, I know he's not finished, but he's going to get there. I'm going to get him there, right? Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And as the people, as Ezra becomes aware of the people's sinfulness, he launches into a prayer. That's what happens in this next section of verses that we actually didn't read this morning. But what's fascinating about Ezra's prayer is that he doesn't even pray that God will forgive the people. He prays that God will make the people aware of how big their transgression is. That's what he asks for. You see him friends, because we have such freedom in Jesus Christ, such forgiveness in Jesus Christ, we can come boldly asking God to make us aware of our sins without being completely crushed by it. There's a quotation by Ray Ortland Sr. that says, um, the worst existence of all is half-hearted Christianity because you know enough about your sin to be devastated, but you don't know enough about your Savior to be happy in him. That's a miserable existence. Right, so we don't just get aware. We're going somewhere. We gotta, we gotta get aware of our sin through Jesus. It means you have a friend and a companion in the Lord Jesus Christ who will sit with you as you become aware of the worst things of your life. Right, this is like going into the doctor's office for a terminal diagnosis, but not alone. Like your Lord is there. He's present in the trenches. So Ezra prays this over the people. And then, and then what we find in chapter 10, verse one, is that while he's praying, he's out at the temple and he's weeping, right? He is making a scene, feeling deeply the consequences of the people of God. And his awareness of sin is contagious. Look back at the Bible. In verse, in verse one, it says, um, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. I've been asking myself, do they even know what they're weeping about yet? Like they just see this guy crying and they're like, well, I guess we're crying today. And so they go, what, what's going on, right? They, they are cut to the heart. They hear him confessing and they're, they're overhearing his confection, confessions and they're going, uh-oh. Like that's me too. They start praying and weeping and then as more people, this great assembly is gathering around, they're hearing the confessions of the people and it's this contagious awareness 
of sinfulness. Can I tell you, if you were to look through history at the varying great moves of God of what you might call uh, periods of revival or spiritual renewal, what you would find is nearly without exception, each of those movements start with a small group of people who get really aware of how sinful they are and cry out to God. You were to look at the, the haystack revivals of the 1800s. You saw a group of college students gathering around hay bales out in these fields, and they are, they are being overcome with the weight of their sinfulness, and they start praying. And what, what launches is this movement of confession, repentance, and gospel renewal. What you see in the, the Moravians, right? They, they begin to pray. They, they led a prayer movement that for 24 hours a day, for a hundred years, someone was praying around the clock in that movement of confession and repentance, right? These mighty moves of God begin with an awareness of our sinfulness. So New City Church, I want to invite us into seeing God's work today. Like we do not have to be afraid of getting aware of our sinfulness. We should welcome it more than anything else. Because guess what? When you become aware of your sinfulness, that is the foundation. That is the starting place of seeing God pour out his power and glory in unique and beautiful ways. Are you aware of your sinfulness? Do you feel the weight of it this morning? I want you to bravely, right now in your own heart, just name, name it. Where are you running from God? We find something happen as the awareness of their sinfulness comes in to focus. And that's, that's where we had in fo- point number two. So point number one is awareness, right? We become aware of our sinfulness. We become aware. And then number two, we move to confession. Look at verse nine in chapter 10 with me. It says, then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. So I want you to picture the scene for a moment. The people of God have flooded into the city square. It's jam-packed and the people are anxiously trembling because they're so aware of their sinfulness. They're like, gosh, if God does with us what we deserve for him to do with us, we are in big trouble right now. As I was thinking about this this week, I've been picturing the Battle of Helm's Deep. Any Lord of the Rings nerds out there? This is the right crowd for that, okay, right? Right, you picture all of these people massed together, the rain is pouring down, right? The tension that exists in that moment, all the the weight of conviction that the people are feeling. And it says in verse 10, that Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, he names their sin, you have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, 
we must do as you have said. Verse 12, right there, that is the essence of confession, y'all. It is so. Something has to change. Right? Confession is not you being fixed yet. Okay? Um, there's a, there's a, a hymn, we've sang it a couple of times here, that says, um, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Like if you wait until you're fixed, if you become aware of your sin and you go, man, I need to, I need to figure out how to button this up in private, apart from other people. And then finally, when I'm not such a mess, when I'm not so needy, then I'll go to community. Or when I've, when I finally figured out how to stop looking at X or to stop doing Y, then I'll come back to God and follow him because I'll finally be worthy of following him. Friends, can I tell you this morning, if you are in Christ, even your best deeds, your best righteousness are like filthy rags before the holy God of the universe. Christianity is not a self-improvement project. It is a savior coming down and giving you, providing for you a covering that you cannot provide for yourself. You know how much boldness that should give you in confession? Why should you hide? What is, what is there to hide when the almighty God himself is happy to cover you beneath his wings? What's in you right now? What is in your heart that is eating you alive? That you're looking at and going, if people found out, if they knew that's what I really felt or what I really believed, or those are the doubts that I really had in my faith or relationship with God, they wouldn't love me anymore. And can I tell you, there is nothing that you will come confessing to the great God of the universe with faith that he cannot cover. There's nothing he can't handle. Not a single thing. And so the mercy of Jesus this morning, friend, I'm, I'm, I'm praying, I've been pleading with the spirit that it would give you boldness in confessing the deepest brokenness of your heart. So you think the reason we're often so resistant to confession is because, you want to know really why? It's because you are operating as your own savior. Like you believe you are the one responsible for covering you and fixing you and making you right. And, and can I just tell you, that is the idolatry of chapter nine in a new form. It is you believing that you are a sufficient God to cover yourself, to clean yourself up. And friend, I love you. You're great, but you are a terrible God. You're so bad at it. And so am I. You, we know this, right? You watch it all the time. You're like, man, I, I just want to be happy. And, and then I ask myself, what, well, what would make you happy? I don't know. We're confused. We're broken. And friend, you can confess that with boldness. And you see Ezra in their confession, he demands not only that they name their sinfulness, but he tells them to do God's will now. 
See, here's where the breakdown happens, okay? And this is what the end of the book of Ezra is really telling us. He says, you need to confess your sins to God and you need to go do his will. And guess what's going to happen again in just a few chapters in Nehemiah? The same cycle. Same cycle. Let me ask you, have you ever thought about why can't we just do the thing that we want to do? Like if you're in Christ and you're like, man, okay, I want to live for him. I want to honor him want to make much of him. And then you get to the end of the day and you go, what was that? What happened? You would, you would have thought that I, I did not have any idea who Jesus was. If you watch me in traffic today. (laughs) Why is that? It's because friend, if you, if you confess but you don't have a heart that's been made new. You can't change. See, many people in our age will tell you um, that change is an inside job. Like you just got to figure out how to make yourself happy. And, and, and part of me, if we were to sit down and parse that out, I, I think I understand what they're saying in some way. Like take responsibility for yourself. That's a, that's a good element in that. But here's where the danger is. You can't fix you. You just can't. You need a new heart. And this is where the promise of the gospel becomes such rich and beautiful news for you. That if you come confessing, if you come in humility and say, I can't fix myself, God, guess what, guess what the Bible says? It says that God's delight is to take a stony heart that can't even love what it's supposed to love, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. A beating heart with new loves and new affections, new desires. And are you going to nail it every time? Nope. No, you're not. Confession is going to continue to be a recycle. But guess what's the difference between our friends here in the book of Ezra and you and I? You have the indwelling power of the spirit of God if you are in Christ. Like his spirit lives inside of you. The spirit animates your obedience. And so goodness, if, if you're anything like me, there have been a few times this week where I found myself saying like, Jesus, I see what you're calling me to do. I, I acknowledge that this is the way, this is the path forward. I'm telling you, I don't have anything to give. Like I, I don't have any strength to offer you obedience right here. And you know what the Lord says to me? He doesn't say, well, you better figure out how to get some strength. He's, you know what he does? Throws me over his shoulder, man right? The, the footprints poem, right? You've heard it of like, I carried you for a while there. That's a little inaccurate. It's, it's more like there's always only been one set of footprints and it hasn't been yours. It's been Jesus carrying you the whole time. That's the reality of the story. Not that you can somehow tap into some inner strength or some beast that's inside of you and you're finally going to conquer your sins. No, no, no. Like get the accountability blocker, put good habits in your life. All of that is good. But I'm telling you without the empowering presence of God, it's like spraying perfume on a casket. 
may smell better for a little bit, but at the end of the day, the situation is still real bad. So New City today, confess with boldness. You don't have to hide. You don't. Your weakness, your doubt, your fear, your failure. And I know, because I'm a sinner too, that there are some of you in this room who stepping out of yesterday, you, you repeated a sin pattern and you put your head in your hands and you went, again? Really? And there's a temptation to let shame keep you from confessing honestly and fully. See, confession is not you telling God what you're going to do differently next time. It's not that. Confession is you telling God where you've come from, right? What's already been done. Confess with boldness. The last part of this text is about repentance. I want us to read verses 16 and 17, and then we'll talk about it. It says, Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra, the priest, selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. So this is, this is systematic repentance is what's going on right here. They're going to these individual men who have embraced idolatry and married these foreign women and they're dissolving these marriages. And I want you to know that's, that's the place in the text that I found myself feeling the weight is like, what about these women? Like, look, look what sin does. It breaks, it tears, it rips things apart that are not meant to be ripped apart. This is a mess of a situation. And so while our friends here in the book of Ezra, they are doing their ever loving best to turn from their sinfulness, it's incomplete, messy, and broken. Can I tell you this morning, much of your repentance will be incomplete, messy, and broken. Just will. It's a mess. There are layers of consequences and layers of hang-up in, in our sinfulness. Repentance is, it's, it's a bible word, right? So for, for some of you, maybe the image is helpful. It simply means to turn, right? To, to turn away from one way of being and operating and turn toward another. And what, what we would see if, as, we, as we're closing the book of Ezra right here today and what we'll see through the book of Nehemiah is that so often as the people of God try to repent, they turn away from the thing that they're not supposed to do, but guess what they don't do? Turn to the God of their fathers. That's incomplete repentance, okay? Um, I think it's Thomas Merton, I believe, who says, um, the only way to drive out an old affection or desire is the presence of a superior new desire. 
Like if I'm not going to love my sin, I need something more lovely to behold in the opposite direction to get my heart's attention. Do you know why you sin fundamentally? Because you love doing it. That's why I sin too. Our hearts go where we love where we desire, right? And so biblical repentance is not merely what we see here at the end of this text, turning away from our sinfulness. We have to turn toward Christ, to him. He has to become more lovely to you. He has to become as real to your heart as he is. I said to a friend this last week, until you can smell Jesus's cologne, he is not vivid enough to you. You got to see him for who he is, friend. If you don't get a bigger vision of Christ, you will not change. You won't. See, the New Testament, it gives us this beautiful image in Galatians 2.20, where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is the essence of what biblical repentance is really about. You see that, that image of being crucified with Christ. Here's the thing about crucifixion. It's a, it's a certain death, but it's often a slow death. Okay. And what happens to a person who's hanging on a cross is that they, they pull themselves up by the nails on their hands and by the nails on their feet. And when they raise up, they scream out, right? They scream out in agony. They try to fight their way off of the cross. And then when they run out of energy, they slouch back down and they gather a few breaths. They gather some more energy and then they raise themselves back up, right? To scream out. When your sin has been nailed to a cross, guess what? There are times where your sin is screaming out, right? That's when you're tempted. That's when you're feeling the weight. You're feeling the pull, the draw of your sinfulness. And then when our sin runs out of energy for a minute, it slouches down. And that's when we go, oh, finally, my sin is dead. Guess what? Your sin is not dead. It's gathering strength, okay? It's gathering strength to stream out again. So in that moment, what you can't do is claim victory in that moment. That's where you got to get more nails and drive more nails into your sin, right? And guess what the nails are? Beholding the glory of Jesus. This is why we tell you to read your Bible every day, y'all. Not because we want you to be good Christian boys and girls, but because if you don't behold Christ in the moments where your sin is quiet, guess what's going to happen when it yells out? You are going to get knocked over. But in the moments where your sin is quiet, you open this book and you say, Jesus, I just want to see your face. You go to him in prayer and you embrace intimacy with him. You gather in community, you get in your village, you confess sin, you move toward Christ because guess what? When the moment comes and your sin cries out, it's a little weaker. Why? Because Jesus is more vivid to you. This is biblical repentance. Friends, right now for some of you, your sin is in a lull. Let's celebrate. Like celebrate. If today's a good day, celebrate. But can I tell you, the move right now is to behold 
the beauty of Jesus. Unless we turn to Christ, our repentance will be as shallow as the repentance of the nation of Israel right here. And I'm just asking us not to do it. Let's go a different way. Whether this is the first time that you have acknowledged your sin or this is the thousandth time that you have acknowledged your sin, it's always hard. Right this morning, we're becoming aware together of that thing inside of us that does not look like Jesus. And right now, I want you to know your great high priest, King Jesus, stands ready to receive your confession with full openness, full love for you. And then he's happy to take hands with you, to link arms with you and say, hey, let's get to work. Let's change, right? Let's do this differently. You are not alone in Jesus Christ. You can look your sinfulness fully in the face, knowing that if you belong to him, the full weight of the forgiveness of heaven belongs to you. It's yours. Rest in that forgiveness today. Confess your sins boldly. And by God's grace, let's repent together. That's that's it. That's the end of my sermon. Let's pray. God, we need so much help even seeing ourselves accurately. For some of us, we still feel baffled or, or distracted or confused of even thinking, what, what do I even really have to repent of? And Jesus, I'm praying that you would help us to see you so clearly this morning that we would not have to wonder. Lord, there's, there's weight on us as we confess this morning and we, we want to acknowledge the weight and put the weight on your shoulders, Jesus. We acknowledge that you gladly took the weight of our sins that we might become righteous and whole. I want to receive your forgiveness today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.